Welcome to The Common Health, the podcast of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security. In it, we delve deeply into the puzzle at home and abroad that connects pandemic preparedness and response, HIV-AIDS routine immunization, primary care, and the geopolitical impacts these have on human and national security. The Common Health replaces under a single podcast the Coronavirus Crisis Update, Pandemic Planet, and AIDS Existential Moment. Please join me, J. Stephen Morrison, and my co-hosts, Catherine Bliss and Andrew Schwartz, as we explore this new era of health security and what it means for U.S. leadership. This is The Common Health. Hello, and welcome to a new episode. I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. And it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Janelle Krishnamurthy, Vice President and Head of Global Public Policy and Corporate Affairs at Merck & Company, to the podcast. Now, in her role at Merck, Janelle oversees work on advocacy and policy related to animal and human health globally. Before joining Merck, she served on the U.S. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee as the Health Policy Director. She's trained and licensed as a clinical pediatric psychologist and previously served as both a AAAS Congressional Fellow and I believe also as a AAAS Fellow at the Department of State, where she worked on health issues for the Bureau of South Asian Affairs, and that's where we first met some time ago. Janelle is a member of the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security and has been a member of the Alliance Working Group on Reinvigorating U.S. Leadership on HIV-AIDS. But we're here today to talk about the challenge of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, which is when bacteria, viruses, fungi, and other germs basically develop the ability to survive or outmaneuver drugs that are developed to kill them. We'll talk about some of the reasons for increased concerns over AMR and then discuss opportunities to improve governance and international collaboration to meet the global threat of AMR in the years to come. So Janelle, welcome to The Common Health. Thank you so much for having me today. Talk about this critical issue. The WHO has called antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, one of the most significant threats to public health in the 21st century. A study published in The Lancet in 2020 showed that even before the COVID-19 pandemic, there were nearly 5 million deaths worldwide per year associated with resistant infections, and many of those deaths were in low-income countries in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. Just last week, The Lancet published research showing that in Southeast Asia, the most frequently dispensed antibiotics are only 50% effective in treating infections like meningitis and sepsis in newborns. And so that's really driving an increasing trend of infant deaths that threatens to unravel decades of progress through the SDGs and the MDGs and, you know, really focusing on improving newborn health. So I want to start by asking from your perspective, what are the main causes of AMR? What are the greatest challenges currently? And why is Merck focused on this issue? No, thank you very much for this important topic and this critical question. I think we have to recognize that antimicrobials, antibiotics, and antifungals underpin the most of all of our modern medical advances. These medicines have the ability to treat and prevent infections and make possible medical advancements from surgery, cancer care, transplantation, and much more. However, our use of these medicines prompts an evolutionary response in microbes to develop resistance. While this evolution is inevitable, AMR is developing more quickly 
due to the inappropriate use of antimicrobials when they are not needed. As you said, 50% of the time, they weren't even effective when they were prescribed. AMR is a one health challenge, meaning AMR can emerge through the use of antimicrobials in human health, food systems, and or release into the environment. Any solution to AMR will require action across all areas. So, you know, you mentioned the One Health approach, and earlier this month, the public health community celebrated the eighth One Health Day. And, you know, this really, as you said, focuses global attention on the shared health threats at the human and animal interface. AMR, of course, is just one issue at this intersection. You know, we could talk about emerging infectious diseases, vector-borne diseases, many food safety, many other issues. And of course, Merck has a large animal health portfolio alongside its work developing products to protect human health. And so could you say a little bit about, you know, how the company has has really come to, to focus on AMR as an issue? Absolutely. And, you know, pulling the thread on this one health approach. So coordinated between human health, food systems, and the environment. So this includes implementing stewardship to prolong the life of our existing arsenal of antimicrobials by only using them when they are needed in both human and in our food systems. Two, advancing the preventative measures such as vaccination and also minimizing the discharge of antimicrobials into the environment and also including improved sanitation, hygiene, and where we have discharge of wastewater from hospitals and other healthcare settings. So the key is really looking at our efforts to improve the stewardship, but must be paired with a robust pipeline of new anchor antimicrobials which will then keep up pace with the ever evolution of resistance. And so why is Merck interested in this very complex problem, which is going to take all of us? We recognize we're one piece of this solution, and we have had a strong legacy for over 100 years of developing novel medicines and vaccines. And we were one of the first companies to mass produce penicillin in the early 1940s. And we've been developing antimicrobials ever since. So with that legacy, we recognize the global threat AMR represents and remain committed to addressing the AMR issue. I think we also, as you pointed out, we do engage in animal health as well. So we can look at this from animal health to human health and what do we what action needs to be taken throughout the entire system. So I want to go back to this kind of tension or, or challenge that you talked about. I mean, you know, when it comes to AMR, there are not a lot of new antimicrobial products in the pipeline. And I think in 2022, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization released a report basically saying the pipeline of antibiotics is insufficient to meet the growing threat of antibiotic-resistant pathogens. But, you know, as you've pointed out, developing the products is time-consuming and expensive. And then there's the issue of stewardship. You develop this product, but then really, we're not supposed to use it very much. And so what are kind of the best options for promoting investments in innovation, access, and uptake while ensuring, you know, that people really are educated to understand both what the challenge is and what the, you know, the potential threats are if antibiotics or antimicrobials are not well. No, I absolutely agree. This is not an easy issue that we can get at with one solution. So as you were saying, if we are 
producing and using antibiotics in a responsible manner, you only use them when they're absolutely needed. And so as the current commercial market is laid out, it's very unstable. And so in short, novel antimicrobials often used sparingly in line with good stewardship and their pricing and reimbursement is not reflected of their value or the benefits that they bring society. So this means the commercial return results on low prices, low volume, doesn't sustain a sustainable investment in the development of novel antimicrobials. So the result is investment into new antimicrobials has declined significantly, with many companies exiting the space. Those that remain struggle to remain commercially sustainable. And in recent years, several biotechs with approved antibiotics meeting unmet AMR needs have filed for bankruptcy. Without sustainable changes to the economic landscape, it will be difficult for any company to justify making the significant investments needed to continue antimicrobial R&D. So we need to address this from the R&D side of things to incentivize more research and development, but all the way through the pull through so that there is a return and on investment for doing all the clinical trials, marketing it, and then using it how they should be used, very sparingly, only when they need to be used. Countries have developed a number of different models for thinking about this. There's priority regulatory review, right? The transferable exclusivity vouchers, subscription. There are a number of different options. You know, can you just kind of explain the landscape of, of what some of the different options that have been put out there are and where you see kind of consensus developing or coalescing around how to balance this tension between appropriate stewardship and the need for constant innovation? This gets at the crux of the problem here. It's, 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 it's really difficult because, as we said, you have to look at this holistically. So if you just invest, which, you know, many governments have invested a great deal in incentivizing research development in the biotechs to really look at some unmet medical needs here and trying to identify future of antibiotics that could be used But then if you don't address what happens after you have the research and development to actually get do the further clinical trials and then have it be in the market and be commercially sustainable, you then, as we've many times heard, run into that valley of death. And that is where investors are not investing in in these areas. Pharmaceutical companies are not doing business development deals in here. And so now it's trying to see how do you make the commercial market sustainable when the whole business model is don't use that antibiotic once you've invested all this time and money into in finding a viable antibiotic. And so how do we address these market challenges? It's been heartening to see countries experimenting on what may work for their country. Here in the U.S., a while ago, we passed the GAIN Act, and that was looking at giving extra exclusivity to novel antibiotics that were coming and meeting an unmet medical need. We then. So this would be just to explain the additional exclusivity is that a company that brought that to market might get 
additional years beyond the normal patent for before a generic could be produced? That is correct, Catherine. Exactly. On that antibiotic. Exactly. They're here in the U.S., they've been looking at trying to pass and try, and it's been introduced, the Pasteur Act, where they're trying to do a subscription model of sort so that it supports new antibiotics that are coming to market, but not relying on the volume of the antibiotic to actually get the return on investment. But that is also having its challenges advancing in the current market, even though current political system, even though it does have bipartisan support. In the UK, they've prepared to launch its full subscription model program to support antimicrobial R&D in 2024. So we'll have to see how that rolls out. The EU Commission has recommended the inclusion of the transferable exclusivity extension for pool incentives in the EU pharmaceutical legislation. That one is a bit controversial. And so that already there have been several member states in the EU who are concerned and does not believe that is the right incentive for novel antibiotics. So it's something where we have to find what works. We can't stop. And this is where it builds on what we talked about earlier of having to build awareness and having the politicians understand the consequences of inaction. There isn't one magic bullet. You can't just incentivize the R&D. You can't just incentivize the commercialization. How do we look at the totality here? So the Innovation, R&D, and kind of marketing of, of new products is one issue. But you also talked about some of the, I guess, monitoring and prevention aspects, right? Like you talked about wastewater, you know, assessments and looking at sanitation. And so I wanted to ask you about the kind of prevention side of issues, because sometimes it seems like kind of the prevention piece isn't always connected with with AMR issues, right? But we know that sanitation and hygiene are very important in clinical settings for infection prevention and control. And of course, there are vaccines, which can be widely effective in in preventing respiratory disease and, and other outbreaks. So could you say a little bit about that connection between prevention and AMR and, and where you see those issues fitting into the landscape? Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up this very important factor, Prevention is absolutely a critical part of addressing AMR. We know that poor wastewater and sanitation is a major contributor to AMR, especially in our lower middle income countries. Steps to improve wastewater, sanitation, and hygiene can not only help prevent AMR, but other infectious diseases as well. I was happy to see the improvements to the WASH which is the wastewater sanitation and hygiene system being referenced in previous high-level meetings with political declarations this year, giving their importance to mitigating all the infectious disease and supporting universal health care. As you mentioned, vaccines are a very important tool in addressing AMR. This is on the human side and the animal side of things to prevent the circulation of resistant microbes. Additionally, vaccines have been shown to be less susceptible to the evolution of resistance than antimicrobials. 
So that is a key that we need to pull through when we are looking at political commitments and action on what we can do next to tackle this serious issue. Okay, so we've talked about R&D and innovation, some of the issues around marketing and stewardship of antimicrobial products themselves. Also, the important issues around prevention and, you know, the use of, of vaccines to, to prevent the circulation of infections in the first place. But you've also referenced uh, some of the political declarations with respect to the UN high-level meetings. Now, in September of 2024, the UN General Assembly will convene the second high-level meeting on AMR, and this is eight years since the first one in 2016. Why is the UN convening this meeting now? I mean, in 2016, was there already planned to be one in another eight years? Or, you know, what's, what's at stake at this moment? And given that we've just come out of a series of high-level meetings at this past General Assembly around tuberculosis, universal health coverage, and then also, of course, the pandemic preparedness and response. To what extent do you see the outcomes of those meetings this year really kind of helping to set the stage for and influence the HLM on antibiotic or antimicrobial resistance in 2024? No, I think, you know, in 2016, the high-level meetings really helped drive forward the AMR on the political agenda in many countries. Over 148 countries developed AMR action plans, and that was as of October 2021. These plans laid out a range of actions to address AMR, including improvements to appropriate use of antimicrobials in human and animal health, development of surveillance capabilities, launching of mechanisms to support R&D, and much more. This political declaration really helped foster strong collaboration amongst many of the multilateral organizations, WHO, um, the UN Environmental Program, FAO, and all coordinating their actions on AMR through a joint secretariat on AMR. Unfortunately, there's always more work to be done. These political declarations, many were commitments. They're open-ended and general. And they got the conversation and the collaboration started. But we found that only 20% of them were fully funded. So this highlights that it's important that we need to ensure sustained activity on AMR once the attention is generated and the political commitment is there. So to have now 2024, a high-level meeting, now there's plenty of work to be done. Now we need to look at what are measurable, concrete actions that can be done that we can then look and track and show that these recommendations are actually showing that these commitments are driving meaningful and sustained progress on AMR. And, you know, out of these last, the 2016 commitments, we did have the global leaders group that was developed. And that is something that we can continue to build from the action from G7 and G20 and developing, supporting stewardship, innovation, sustainable food systems, but now coming up with measurable indices and metrics in these different areas so we can actually see change. 
So can you give an example of, I mean, are we looking at something like, you know, when with HIV, we talk about 95, 95, 95, or, you know, are you looking for specific numbers that all countries can kind of rally around and, and focus on, or will it be kind of a more bespoke or tailored approach that each country will, will need to kind of develop their own metrics to kind of tell the story about how they're doing? I do think there needs to be, since this is affecting everything from your food supply, your wastewater output, and then also to developing new anti-novel antibiotics, so looking at incentives for this, that there needs to be some overall targets for, in general, globally, within some tailored execution measures of how we get there. So I want to stay on this theme of politics for a minute and ask you a little bit about advocacy and the role of community groups in raising awareness about critical health issues. This morning, I was over at a a session at the Council on Foreign Relations, really looking, it was a conversation between Anthony Fauci, who's, of course, just stepped down as the head of NIAID, and John Kingasong, who's the ambassador for global health security and diplomacy. And you know, they were, you know, really talking about the important lessons learned from, you know, work with HIV over several decades on the, you know, really the critical role that the community plays in helping to, you know, bring issues to the front and help kind of set the stage for policy direction. And in a similar way, you know, this was also true during COVID-19, where as the science was developing, it was really important to communicate directly with the community and really take people's experiences into account. Sometimes it seems like with AMR, the role of advocacy is a little, a little bit different or maybe not quite as obvious. And I know at the beginning when we started talking, you mentioned the importance of really thinking about AMR in terms of cancer care, in terms of the, we talked about neonatal health and, and some of these other issues. But I wanted to ask you to say a little bit about the role of advocacy and education in raising awareness about the policy challenges of AMR. And how those groups can, you know, here in the United States and in other countries kind of be most effective in reaching out to decision makers, whether here it's Congress or others, to urge appropriate action and, you know, just to really kind of keep this issue in the forefront. It's a really important question in how we continue to get the message heard. I think many of our governments are struggling with many issues that they are trying to address and with very tight budgets at this moment. Uh, We heard recently the United States is approaching a $2 trillion deficit. And so having to really put in context, what is at stake if we don't act here? And why is it important? And how will this cause issues that could lead to a further economic and destabilization of their community and their constituents. So we have to continue to raise broad public awareness around AMR. We need to broaden the tent of stakeholders. We've mentioned, you know, um, cancer, which is a really important group, and other treatments and other areas, and also your cattlemen association and your other, your sanitation stakeholders, and really looking across also the lifespan here, as you said, from neonatal to end of life, and that many of our 
amazing innovations that are coming out of innovative science, just cutting edge, that they will not see their fruition if someone gets an antimicrobial resistant infection in the hospital once they get this amazing miracle of a transplant. And they could have so much life ahead of them. And here it's cut short by AMR. And this is where our expending our coalitions with the Union for International Cancer Control and others who are doing studies that really show the risk of AMR for cancer care in the inpatient and outpatient setting has implications on the investments that many of our governments are making in prevention or in treatment. It's kind of short-sighted if we are not also looking at the antibiotics that can treat people once they are getting many of these innovations. We need to, in addition to broadening our tent, to articulate the threat that AMR represents to modern medicine and the economic implications. We need to do more studies to better illustrate the true risk of AMR to the broader population and help mobilize our broader tent, especially as we're looking at soon our high-level meetings that are occurring in the next eight to nine months or so. So the next high-level meeting is in September, and it seems like we just finished the latest round of meetings, but that one is is not far off. You're, of course, involved with the Global Leaders Group and this push to really kind of develop a set of indicators or metrics that countries can rally around to really try to give concrete actions and visibility to, to the challenge of AMR. As we kind of see the work of the Pandemic Prevention Preparedness and Response Accord move forward, you know, looking toward the World Health Assembly and some of those decisions in May. And, of course, the Pandemic Fund is already kind of working to develop its set of grant allocations. What are you most optimistic about during the next period? And as we get to the other side of the high-level meeting, how will you kind of know or kind of feel that it has been successful? I think we can't ever rest on our laurels, right? Too much is at stake at this moment. So we have about nine or 10 months until the high-level meeting. But as you said, in the meantime, we have the pandemic prevention, preparedness and response accord, the pandemic fund at the World Bank. And so I think we recognize that the global AMR advocacy stakeholders are setting these ambitious goals for 2024 high-level meeting. So we have our work cut out for us right now. That said, I'm seeing almost universal sentiment from AMR stakeholders, both from the global north and the global south, around the need to bring forward our actual commitments with a mechanism to ensure accountability. We're also seeing AMR continue to be raised in the fora that I said as the pandemic accord, which points to a growing recognition of understanding of this issue. Although this makes me optimistic that global stakeholder community can come together and really drive forward the political momentum that can result in an HLM meeting. And it's very, it achieves a step change in the global efforts to address the growing AMR threat. I think the proof will really be seen in what metrics can be developed here. Do we see actual stewardship metrics? Do we see the uptick of more investment and vigorous research? 
in antimicrobial resistance? Do we see investors wanting to invest in antimicrobial resistance? Do we see pharmaceutical companies doing business development deals with small biotechs and then eventually having more novel antibiotics in the market? So really seeing the end-to-end from the stewardship to actually the development of new novel antibiotics. I think that's going to be a long process, but I do think you have to look at it through the whole continuum because if you're only looking at investing in the R&D or the stewardship and don't address the market-level failures, we then are dealing with that valley of death that we have many times talked about in the past. And so we really have to look at this in a comprehensive manner with all stakeholders coming together. So can I ask you a question, you know, just thinking about the governance issues? I mean, you know, you've talked about R&D, stewardship, prevention, you know, many of these issues that have to come together in a holistic way. But one thing I didn't hear you talk much about was or is the issue of substandard or false medicines that we know are on the market in some places, and also just the challenge of, I guess, you know, corruption within the health system or absenteeism and some of the problems that lead people not to be able to have kind of recurrent access to therapies that they need and you know, the potential for the development of resistant organisms in that sense. Is that something that the HLM is going to address, or is that something kind of beyond the scope of, of that discussion? It, it's something that has to be in, addressed. It's imperative and important. I think the HML is probably a good place to start talking about that governance and thinking about what needs to be done. It may be something that where we have the WHO and the other. I think the UN high-level meeting is a great place where this issue is discussed and that you bring in the global leaders group and other real experts that can look at this at that level. But I do see the WHO, the FAO, WOAH, and the UN Environmental Program really coming together with that joint secretariat on AMR and digging down further on what that governance would look like and being able to give more guidance to countries, especially as we're looking at LMICs that may be looking for a little more detail than what the high-level meeting may be able to provide. What gives me hope, Catherine, is places like CSIS and other groups and key opinion leaders and researchers and the private sector and the governments are continuing to try to come together to solve this. But it will not, again, take one group or one person or one solution. And that's why the time to act is now in figuring out what works so that we can really have increases in research and development and increases of new antibiotics and at the same time, strong surveillance systems and also strong metrics that we're actually meeting unmet medical need, especially in our LMICs. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today. And I do hope that as the high-level meeting gets underway and 
on the other side of that, we'll be able to talk again and assess the outcomes and the metrics that have been developed to really look at how the next phase of bringing this multi-sector group together to really address the challenge of AMR will take shape. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Common Health. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and leave a review. To learn more about the CSIS Bipartisan Alliance for Global Health Security or listen to other CSIS podcasts, please visit csis.org.